excited to be here this morning. Thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity uh, to be able to lead this service. This is a real honor, um, and it's a real humbling experience to be able to um, lead a church family in something so special, so sacred. Um, today we are going to take partake. Uh, we're going to partake of communion. And so in a few minutes, we're going to do what churches have done for a couple thousand years. The sober and sacred time is remember uh, the broken body of our Lord Jesus and, and also the pure sinless blood that he willingly shed for the remission of our sins. It's also a time to examine our lives and take inventory of where we are in our relationship with the Lord. This morning, we're going to look at the very first communion service that took place there in that upper room. And so I invite you uh, this morning to turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel according to John, John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and as you find that, if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. John 13, and we're going to actually read verses 21 through 26 this morning. And follow along as I read out loud this morning. The Bible says, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Well, Jesus answered, He it is, to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Could we pray together this morning? Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. And Lord, the, the record that we just read about the what took place in that upper room so many years ago. Lord, what an intimate time that you had with your disciples. Lord, I pray that we would learn some things this morning as we get ready to participate in our communion service here. Lord, I would I pray that you would help us repair our hearts for what we're about to do through this message. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> John chapter 13 begins a, a unique look at the account of when Jesus met with his disciples uh, there in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. It was in this chapter that we see Jesus illustrating the kenosis passage found in Philippians chapter number 2, where it says that, that Jesus made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. As he, he took that towel and that basin, began to wash the disciples' feet. No other gospel uh, author recorded that event. Also in John's account, we find some of the most powerful and life-changing lessons he ever taught his disciples from which we still benefit even today. Truths presented in this section of Scripture that took place in the upper room include when Jesus told Thomas and all of mankind that He truly is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man cometh unto the Father but by Me. That happened in the upper room. And it happened, and John was the only one that recorded that saying. This is also when Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit after He departed from this world and gave us that precious promise that He would send a comforter. And this is also uh, the time when He encouraged His disciples to abide in Him, to abide in the vine. As, and then as they do, that they would indeed bear fruit. Uh, the upper room is also where Jesus prayed His high priestly prayer found in John chapter number 17. And so John records something that the other the other uh, gospel writers did not include. He gives some details that the others admitted. And in these details, he highlights some of the disciples and their reactions to what was going on in that upper room. John gives us sort of a play-by-play -play commentary on what these men were thinking as they watched Jesus break that bread and pass that cup. And this morning, we're going to look at the three disciples that John mentioned in the passage we read a few moments ago. And as we 
examine these three disciples, I would challenge you and me to ask ourselves which one that you identify with the most and which disciple that you should strive to emulate as well. And so we'll start this morning where John starts as he begins John chapter number 13. Verse number 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. I'm going to take a time out and say this. If you had 24 hours to live and you knew that, what would you do with that block of time? Jesus knew that His life was about to end here on this earth. And His choice... I like at the end of the verse, He chose to love them unto the end. He loved His own which were in the world, and He loved them unto the end. Well, verse 2 says, And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The first disciple we're going to examine this morning is Judas Iscariot, and we're going to call him the counterfeit disciple. The counterfeit disciple. He's also mentioned in verse number 21 and where our passage we read at the very beginning this morning. In talking, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they began to wonder who it was. In verse 26, Jesus solves the mystery and gives that, that bread that He dipped to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Verse 27, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, Thou that thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, well, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Well, he then, having received the sop, went out immediately, and it was night. And so Judas Iscariot is the first disciple we're going to look at this morning, and he is indeed the counterfeit disciple, the phony, the fraud, the imposter. Well, the other disciples were pretty surprised that it was Judas. Why were they so surprised? Well, first of all, he had the right appearance. Judas looked like a disciple, and from all outside appearances, Judas was a disciple. I mean, he was among the other disciples and looked the part. He fit right in. But as the sayings go, looks can indeed be deceiving, and you shouldn't always judge a book by its cover. You see, mere appearance doesn't make anyone a disciple. In fact, Judas was considered the most distrusted disciple of the bunch, as he was the treasurer, the one in charge of the bag of money. And it seemed as though he had the other disciples fooled, as they would have never guessed that the traitor was Judas himself. Look in verse number 25. He then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? Who's the one that's going to betray you? Well, Jesus answered, well, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. Well, when he dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Everybody must have thought, Judas is the one? Well, that's not what they thought. Verse 27, uh, Then said Jesus unto him, that, that thou doest do quickly. Verse 28, here's what they thought. No man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So the disciples were still unsure that it was Judas that would betray him. And what he and how he would betray him. He had all appearances that everything was just right with him. He looked like he was a disciple. I think back to when Samuel was called by God to go anoint the next king of Israel. And he went to Jesse's house and saw the brothers and the sons of Jesse and the brothers of David come by, and, and Eliab was there, and here was this good looking good-looking man who had the right appearance. Samuel said, surely this is the, the Lord's anointed. 
This is the one. I mean, look at him. He looks like he could be the next king. He's got the right appearance. Well, the next verse says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. Because the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And as Judas was walking and talking with Jesus and, and being with the other disciples, he looked the parts and everybody looked at him and said, wow, what a great disciple. In fact, let's put him in charge of the money. Let's give him some responsibility because he's so trustworthy. Well, he fooled everyone. This morning, you may be able to fool everyone in this church. You might be able to fool your family members and all your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. Might all think that you are a disciple, that you are indeed a Christian. But you'll never be able to fool the all-knowing God, all-knowing God. You see, He knows whether you belong to Him or not. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not trying to create doubt in the heart of the child of God this morning. But I'm also not trying to give assurance of salvation where there is no salvation. And just because you appear to be saved, just because you have an appearance that you are a disciple doesn't necessarily mean you are a disciple. Judas, exhibit A. Oh, he had the right appearance. He also had the right words. He had the right words to say. No doubt Jesus, Judas knew how to talk like a disciple. In fact, he was probably fluent in Christianese. How you doing? Oh, praise the Lord, brother. I'm doing good. Amen. He knew how to talk like a disciple, but he was not a disciple. In other passages, we find him expressing concern about the poor. Mr. Spiritual here. In the previous chapter, John chapter 12, when uh, a great act of worship was displayed uh, to Jesus, in chapter, in chapter 12, verse 4, then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Oh, look, Judas cares about the poor. How spiritual. How wonderful. What a great disciple. Well, the next verse says, This said he, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear was put therein. In the book of Matthew, we see that Judas had made an agreement with the chief, chief priest to sell the Lord for 30 pieces of silver prior to the upper room event. Go over with me to Matthew chapter 26. He had the right words. He knew what to say. Just because we know what to say doesn't mean we're one of His. Matthew 26, verse number 14, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenant with him for thirty pieces of silver. Verse 16, And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. And then he joins the other disciples and Jesus in the upper room. So he has in the back of his mind, I've got to find the perfect opportunity to betray this guy because I want 30 pieces of silver. Well, verse 25, jump down to verse 25 of Matthew 26. Well, let's back up to verse 24. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Verse 25, Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? Remember all the disciples were saying, Lord, is it I? Is it me? He didn't want to, he didn't want to look like he wasn't a disciple. So he humbly asked, is it I? When he knew full well that it was indeed him, that very soon he would lead these chief priests to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
and point out Jesus and lay the kiss of betrayal upon the cheek of his master and Lord. He knew all the right words to say. Again, Judas would have won the Academy Award for Best Actor. And yet acting like a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Titus chapter 1, Paul's talking to Titus and warning him about uh, those who are unruly and vain talkers, deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. He says in verse 16, they profess that they know God. Oh, they have the right words. Oh, I believe in God. It says, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. They have the right words. Uh, look, America's filled with people who say they're Christians. And maybe even look like Christians. Certainly talk like Christians. But their actions are contradicting contradicting their words. A story that I read recently, a man was being tailgated by a woman who was in a great hurry. He comes to an intersection and when the light turns yellow, he hits the brakes. Well, the woman behind him goes ballistic. She honks her horn at him. She yells her frustration in no uncertain terms. She rants and gestures. While she is in mid-rant, someone taps on her window. She looks up and sees a police officer. He kindly invites her out of her car, takes her to the station where she is searched and fingerprinted and put in a cell. After a couple hours, she's released, and the arresting officer gives her personal effects and saying, look, ma'am, I'm, I'm very sorry for the mistake. You, you see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn using bad gestures and bad language. And I noticed the, what would Jesus do, bumper sticker, the choose life license plate holder, the follow me to Sunday school window sign, and the Christian fish emblem on your trunk. And I naturally assumed that you had stolen the car. The world gets pretty tired of people who have Christian bumper stickers on their cars, Christian fish signs on their trunks, Christian books on their shelves, Christian stations on their radios, Christian jewelry around their necks, Christian videos for their kids, Christian magazines for their coffee tables, but don't actually have the life of Jesus in their bones or the love of Jesus in their hearts. You see, Judas had a profession of faith, but he did not possess faith. He may have turned over a new leaf, but he had not received new life. He had not personally believed on Christ. He had the right words. He had the right appearance. He also had the right actions. While he was a, quote, follower of Jesus. I mean, he spent three years walking and talking with the Lord of glory. And yet he still did not know him, nor did Jesus really know him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. That does mean that as other believers, as we're trying to determine whether another person is saved, we can often look at their fruits. Then he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. One of the saddest words here in this passage is the word many will say to me in that day. Many will say to me in that day. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There's going to be a lot of people, unfortunately, that are going to appear before God and say, God, I preached many sermons in your name. I taught Sunday school lessons. I sang in the choir. I did a lot of wonderful works. He's going to say, yes, but you never knew me, and I never knew you. You never had a personal relationship with me. Judas, the counterfeit disciple, had the right actions. 
I like what Paul said in the book of Romans where he said the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Amen. Does the Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you're one of His children? Not so with Judas. Are you God's child? Is He your Father? Paul said to the church at Corinth, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Is Christ in you? Are you in Him? Judas, the counterfeit disciple, the pretender, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the results were absolutely disastrous. Your Bible is still open to Matthew chapter 26. Look in verse or chapter 27. Verse number 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. He didn't repent to the Lord, he repented himself. And brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Results were absolutely disastrous. Right now, Judas is burning in hell right this very minute. How tragic. A man who walked and talked with the Lord Jesus for three years. Here was a man who heard the greatest sermons ever preached. Saw countless miracles performed by the Lord Jesus Himself. He watched the Son of God live everyday life. And now in the upper room saw Jesus wash the disciples' feet and serve the bread of the cup and yet still chose to reject Him as Savior. Have you ever heard of the name Harry Randall Truman? This was not the Harry Truman that served as the President of the United States. This was a different Harry Truman. Harry Randall Truman was a homeowner at the foot of Mount St. Helens in Washington State. In 1980, the volcanic mountain was showing signs of a major eruption. Many of you remember that. Indeed, one expert declared that the chance of a major eruption was virtually 100%. Truman's home was located at the south end of Spirit Lake at the foot of the mountain. He was living in the most likely path of the volcanic lava flow. He was facing an almost certain death. Well, government officials arrived and implored him to leave. Friends told him that his failure to move was tantamount to suicide. Family members begged him to leave lest he die. Well, sure enough, on May 18th, 1980, the massive eruption took place. And the, the lava flowed just as experts predicted, right in the projected path of Truman's home. And sadly, on May 18th, 1980, Harry Randall Truman died. You see, he could, he just could not let go of his home, even if it meant certain death. For many of us today, this is our warning. You've built your house at the foot of the volcano. The eruption is coming and you are in danger if you don't change. If you do not let go of your sin and give your life to Christ and believe on Him for salvation, your destruction is certain. What are you holding on to? Well, people have thought I've been saved all these years. If I admit that I'm really not, that'll be embarrassing. Really, you're going to let that stand in the way of you coming to Christ? Well, I was raised in a Christian home, and why I know all the answers. I even look like a disciple. I've done a lot of great things. Yeah, so did Judas. He was an imposter. He was a fraud. Counterfeit. 
If you identify with Judas this morning, I want to challenge you and encourage you to come to Christ and be saved. Put away the appearance, put away the words, put away the works. Come to Him only for salvation. Stop trusting in any of that. Make sure you are one of His. Is Christ in you and are you in Christ? Do you belong to Him? Have you been born again? Have you been washed in the blood? If you are a counterfeit disciple, come to Christ today and be saved. Let's move on to the next disciple that John highlights here in John chapter 13. Verse number four, this disciple is mentioned. Well, the story picks up here in verse four. He rises from supper and layeth aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. So the next disciple we're going to mention this morning is Peter. And he's the confused disciple. He's a little confused as he's watching all of this happen. Let's continue reading here. Verse 6, He cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash... Wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And then Simon Peter, Mr. Extreme here, Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I want to mention, first of all, this morning regarding Peter, that he was confused about the will of God. He was confused about the will of God. The will of God here was for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet, albeit strange, and not trying to fault Peter here, because if I were watching this scene, I would have been confused as well. I would have been wondering, why is the Lord of glory... Bowing down and washing my stinky, smelly feet. Why is he doing this? It doesn't make sense to me. And what he was doing, of course, was providing a living example that says, if I'm going to do this, this is how I want you to be. Uh, the ministry is not for a bunch of lords exercising authority every, over everyone. The ministry is for those who are willing to serve and to do the lowly things. And he was trying to paint that picture for the disciples and to teach them this lesson. Well, Peter wasn't going to have it. He had spiritual reasons after all because Jesus didn't deserve to be doing this and Peter was right, but it still was not the will of God. Can I just say this? Many times in our lives, we'll see the Lord do something in our lives and we won't understand it. And we don't necessarily think it's the right thing and we have spiritual motives and intentions, of course. Because we know better than the Lord. Like Peter did. I mean, listen to what Peter says in verse number 8. He begins to tell God what to do and what he should not do. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Have you ever told the Lord what he should and shouldn't do in your life? Lord, I know what you're doing here, but, but you shouldn't do it because I know better. I know most of us would say, oh, that's kind of crazy to actually do, but I've done it. When the Lord's allowed something in my life that's less than desirable and I have spiritual reasons why He shouldn't do this, so I begin to tell Him, Lord, Thou shalt never wash my feet. He didn't understand what the Lord was doing in His life and He also didn't think the Lord should be doing it. But it was indeed the will of God for Jesus to be doing it. You know, Job had some things happen to him, didn't he? Some things that were maybe hard for him to understand. Now we have the full picture. We know why the Lord was allowing all of this in Job's life. But Job, he didn't have the, he wasn't privy to Job chapter one. 
and the conversation that was happening between the Lord and, and Satan in heaven. And so all, as all of this was happening in his life, not one time did he say, Lord, you shouldn't be doing this. I don't understand what you're doing. Here's what Job's response to what the Lord was doing in his life. Of course, just to, re- just to refresh our memory, what was the Lord doing in his life? Well, he was allowing the devil to take away all of his family. His children all perished. His relationship with his wife was, had seen better days. His wealth was gone. His health was diminished. And here's what he had to say in Job 9 and verse 10. And talking about God, the one who allowed all of this to happen in his life. He said in Job 9 verse 10, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Here was a man who accepted and received the will of God for his life and didn't try to fight it. Didn't try to tell God what to do, what not to do. Job appreciated and received the sovereignty of God in his life. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Romans chapter 11. At the end of that chapter, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Peter didn't have to understand all that Jesus was doing in that moment. He simply had to trust what Jesus was doing in that moment and trust the Lord as what, uh, uh, for what God was doing in his life. There's been many things in my life that I haven't understood why God allowed. But I got to understand that God is good and he has a reason. And I may not ever understand all of the reasons why He's allowed certain things in my life. But God is God and let Him be God. He's a better God than I am. Isaiah 55. Here the Lord is speaking and He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, you're not going to always understand everything that God allows in your life. Amen. And you don't have to keep trying. Just trust Him. He's good. His plan is perfect. Stop trying to put Him in a box. And that's what Peter was trying to do here. Lord, I know how this is supposed to work. You're the Lord of glory. I'm supposed to wash your feet. Spiritual, of course. But it was wrong because Jesus had something greater in mind. I like the song, Like a River Glorious. Is God's perfect peace over all victorious in its bright increase. Perfect yet it floweth fuller every day. Perfect yet it groweth deeper all the way. I like the third, the second stanza. Hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand, never foe can follow, never traitor stand, not a surge of worry. Not a shade of care. Not a blast of hurry touched the Spirit there. Every joy or trial falleth from above. Traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly, find Him wholly true. Good advice. He was confused about the will of God. And many times I fear that as a disciple of the Lord, sometimes I'm confused about the will of God in my life as well. But I want to encourage us to not try to always figure things out and to put God in a box, but to allow Him to be God and to trust Him with what He allows in our lives. Peter was also confused about his own strength. He was confused about his own strength at the end of John chapter 13. and verse number 36 Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither, whither goest thou? And Jesus answered him, Whither goest thou? I'm sorry, whither I go? Thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, that 
the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. And in the other gospel accounts, we find him saying, I'll go, I'll go to death for you, Lord. I'm not going to deny you. Though all men forsake you, I won't. He overestimated his own abilities, his own strength. And he was confused about his own strength. Peter, albeit sincere, was overestimating his strength and ability to stay faithful. And can I encourage all of us, maybe those who have been saved for a length of time, and we get to the point where we think, this Christian life, I've got this. You know, I, I, I know what to do. I've heard it all before. I know all the answers. I've got this. I'm not going to, I'm not in any danger of falling anytime soon. I'm fine. I mean, I, I've been saved for a long time, you know. Paul gives a warning to the church at Corinth and he says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth. You better take heed lest you fall. The one who says, I'm not going to fall, get ready because you're about to trip. Amen. We all know what happened to Peter. The Peter ended up doing exactly what he promised he wouldn't do. Denied the Lord three times. Peter himself wrote this. 1 Peter chapter 5. These are words of the man who denied the Lord. Humbly he wrote these words, Be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him for He careth for you. And then he writes this, Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Can't help but think as he was writing that, that, that particular verse. He was thinking back to when Jesus himself, and he heard, he, he was listening back to when Jesus said, Simon, Simon, the devil desires to have you that he may sift you as wheat. He no doubt thought, yeah, he really did. I should have listened. I should have heeded what Jesus said to me that day. We do need to take our spiritual pride and throw it in the garbage can because it will only lead us to destruction. Peter, the confused disciple. I'll admit, sometimes I'm confused about the will of God sometimes. It doesn't always make sense to my finite mind. But guess what? It doesn't have to make sense to me. I just simply need to follow and trust. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me... Am I following the shepherd? Or do I have to ask the shepherd, why are we going to this pasture now? Why are you leading me into this valley now? A shepherd doesn't ask... Or a sheep doesn't ask the shepherd all those questions. He simply follows. As a, as a sheep, I need to follow and trust my shepherd. The third disciple we're going to talk about this morning is the man who penned this particular book of the Bible, John himself. He's found in verse number... We'll start here in verse number 21. When Jesus had thus said... He was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And here's where John's mentioned in verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 23 here. But then the disciples looked one another, doubting of whom he spake. And here's where John's mentioned. There was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Then verse 25, he's mentioned again. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? John often referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John is going to be the close disciple. The disciple who's close to the Lord. I want us to notice, first of all, his appreciation. His appreciation is the fact that he, he, wasn't, he never got over the fact that Jesus loved him. He was so thankful for the fact that he was a disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Look, he wasn't trying to brag or be arrogant. He was simply thankful and amazed that Jesus would love him. This isn't the only time it's mentioned that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John chapter 19 mentions it. In verse number 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his, his mother, Woman, behold thy son. In chapter 20, verse 2, Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, saith unto them, and goes on down. In chapter 21, verse 7, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. And then also in that chapter, verse 20, Then Peter, turning about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved, following. So here, John is referring to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. He would have agreed with Philip Bliss as he wrote these words to the beloved hymn, I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. Couldn't get over it. The Apostle Paul couldn't either when he simply said, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. It is gratitude that prompted an old man to visit an old broken pier on the eastern seacoast of Florida. Every night until his death in 1973, he would return, walking slowly and slightly stooped with a large bucket of shrimp. The seagulls would flock to this old man and he would feed them from his bucket. Many years before, in October of 1942, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was on a mission in a B-17 to deliver an important message to General Douglas MacArthur in New Guinea. But there was an unexpected detour which would hurl Captain Eddie into the most harrowing adventure of his life. Somewhere over the South Pacific, the Flying Fortress became lost beyond the reach of radio. Fuel ran dangerously low, so the men ditched their plane in the ocean. And for nearly a month, Captain Eddie and his companions would fight the water and the weather and the scorching sun. They spent many sleepless nights recoiling, recoiling as giant sharks rammed their rafts. The largest raft was nine by five. And the biggest shark, ten feet long. But all of their enemies at sea, one proved most formidable, starvation. Eight days out, their rations were long gone or destroyed by the salt water. And it would take a miracle to sustain them. And a miracle occurred. In Captain Eddie's own words, Cherry, that was the B-17 pilot, Captain William Cherry. Cherry, read the service that afternoon and we finish with a prayer for deliverance and a hymn of praise. There was some talk, but it tapered off in the oppressive heat. With my hat pulled down over my eyes to keep out some of the glare, I dozed off. Now this is still Captain Rickenbacker talking. Something landed on my head, and I knew that it was a seagull. I didn't know how I knew. I just knew. Everyone else knew, too. No one said a word, but peering out from under my hat brim without moving my head, I could see the expression on their faces. They were staring at that seagull. The goal meant food, if I could catch it. And the rest, as they say, is history. Captain Eddie caught the goal. Its flesh was eaten. Its intestines were used for bait to catch fish. The survivors were sustained and their hopes renewed because a lone seagull uncharacteristically, hundreds of miles from land, offered itself as a sacrifice. And you know that Captain Eddie made it. You also now know that he never forgot. Because every Friday evening about sunset on a lonely stretch outside of eastern Florida seacoast, you could see an old man walking, white-haired, bushy-eyebrowed, slightly bent. His bucket filled with shrimp was to feed the gulls. To remember that one which... On a long day past, gave itself without a struggle, like manna in the wilderness. What about you? Someone 
much greater than a seagull, gave his life on the cross of Calvary for you, for me. How many days go past before you say thank you to him? Can I encourage all of us this morning to never get over the wonder and the joy of our salvation and the the fact that Jesus loves you, for the Bible says so? Because of that appreciation, because of that gratitude that John had, because he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and I'm thankful that I can say that too. If you're saved, you can say that as well. You can join the John Club and say, I am a disciple whom Jesus loved. And never get over that. Because of that appreciation, that gratitude for the love of Christ in his life, it caused him to want to be close to his Lord as well. So we see his appreciation, but I want you to see his location. Verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Here was John leaning on the chest of his Savior. He was close to his Savior, his Lord, his Master and friend. He says of himself that he was actually leaning on the bosom of Jesus. So perhaps he could even hear the very heartbeat of God. Wow. I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. Draw me nearer. Nearer. Blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to Thy precious bleeding side. I hope that's your prayer and that's your desire to draw closer to the Lord. I'm thankful that as we draw near to God, He promises to draw nigh to us. But unfortunately, Some things in our lives cause distance between us and the Lord. Isaiah 29 and verse 13, the Lord said, For as much as His people draweth near me with their mouth, with their lips do they honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. Jesus repeated this and quoted this verse. In Matthew chapter 15, He says, Ye hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their lips, and honor me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Far from me. You might again be someone who has all the words that flatter the Lord and say, Oh yes, I love the Lord. But God's not concerned with what your mouth is saying or what your lips are putting out as much as where your heart is. Is your heart far from Him today? Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Isaiah 59 and verse 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Our sin caused this distance between God. I love this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, and I can't wait till pastor gets to it in the, in the series he's going through. Ephesians 2 and chapter, or chapter 2 verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, In Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You see, we can have this nearness to the Lord because of the blood of Christ that He shed on the cross of Calvary. John was the close disciple. He was close because he had a great appreciation for the love of God in his life. He was close in that he drew near to God. He took steps. He didn't have to lean on the breast of Jesus, but he chose to. You have a choice to be close to the Lord or not. The Lord's not going to run away from you. 
He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. It's we who forsake Him. And so I would encourage you this morning to desire to be a close disciple. Draw nigh to the Lord. I'm thankful that John gives us an inside look at these three disciples as they participated in the very first communion service there in that upper room. As we've looked at these three individuals, I want to ask, which one are you? Are you the counterfeit disciple? Are you the one who, putting on this big show, there's no life inside? If so, please, today, come to Christ and be saved. If you're the confused disciple, you're struggling to figure out why things have happened in your life, or maybe you're thinking, you've got this. You don't need any help. You've been saved for so long, it doesn't matter anymore. I don't, I'm not going to fall into any temptation. Be careful. You're confused. And I hope that all of us will desire to be like John, the close disciple, to be appreciative and be thankful for what God's done in our lives and to draw close to Him, to be close to our shepherd as He leads us along life's journey. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank You for Lord John putting putting this account together in the Word of God for us. And Lord, how he pinpoints Peter, how he pinpoints Judas, he even pinpoint, pinpoints himself and lessons that we can learn as we examine our own lives, as we prepare to partake of the elements this morning of communion. Pray, Lord, that you would draw us closer to you and help us to take the steps necessary to draw close to you. Lord, if there's one here today that's never trusted Christ as their Savior alone for salvation, pray, Lord, that you would work in their heart, draw them to yourself, help them to put away their appearance, their words, their actions, trust you alone. Lord, if there's some here today that are confused about what you're doing in their life, Pray, Lord, that they would learn to trust you, trust your goodness. Pray, Lord, that there are some here today that are, are battling spiritual pride, thinking that they don't need any help and that they're beyond any type of temptation. Lord, I pray that you would smite us from that and help us to humble ourselves before you. Lord, I pray that you would draw us closer to you like John did.